Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've spent our time in this series on contentment, Christian contentment, studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'd like for our last session together in contentment to look at Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, chapter 6. And we'll be reading together verses 3 to 19. Paul says to Timothy, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels and words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life." Do you know what is wrong with riches? Nothing. Do you know what is wrong with desiring riches? Everything. Do you know what is wrong with acquiring riches? Nothing. Do you know what is wrong with, from the heart, pursuing riches? Everything. You cannot serve God and serve money. You cannot love God and love money too. Now this morning, I want to be 
very, very plain. I want to be blunt. I want to, I want to cut it straight with you. And the harshness of my words and even some of the tone that I am going to use this morning, um, may be naturally bothersome to some people, but my, my word choice and my tone is going to be very deliberate and I want to match the word choice and the tone of the word of God. So, uh, just up front want to give to you that, that warning and say, this is scripture. You cannot love God and money too. Prosperity preachers say that you can. They say that you can have the best of both worlds. You can have the Lord and money too. But actually, in fact, it's even worse than that. That message, you can have the Lord and money too, is bad enough. But it's worse than that. It's not just the Lord and money too. It's through the Lord, money too. So that temporal, worldly wealth becomes the goal and God is the means. God is not the destination. He is not the goal. Riches are. And so take this quote from Joel Osteen, which is so typical of him and all of Satan's minions which spout this Christian prosperity nonsense. He says, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. Now, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's the desire to be rich. So we are not, it is clear, we are not to desire riches. But God desires us to be rich. We are not to desire to have plenty of money, but God desires that we are to have plenty of money. That statement is just straightly, unequivocally, unbiblical. We cannot give room in our hearts to riches. You can hold them in your hand. There is nothing wrong with holding riches in your hand. Or let me say, having riches would be a better way to put it. Nothing wrong with having riches in your hand. But there is something wrong with holding riches in your heart. Giving space to riches in your heart. Because God will demand all of us. He does demand all of us. And he makes it very clear. My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48. So do you have room in your heart for riches this morning? Do you have room in your heart for riches? My hope is that on the other side of this message today, you would be resolved that you are not going to spend your life desiring and pursuing after riches, but you are going to spend your life pursuing after godliness with contentment and do so with all your might. Do not believe Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Joseph Prince and Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes and all the wolves in suits who appear on TBN. Don't believe them. They are messengers of the devil. 
And I know that there are a lot of evangelical preachers who hate the prosperity gospel, but do not name prosperity preachers. That is, in their mind, stepping over a line. And I don't have that reservation. For one reason, because Paul didn't have that reservation. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he calls out, he says, Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So I'm going to name names, because I think the warning needs to be stark, clear, that these are people to avoid. It would be very difficult for me this morning to overstate the danger that they represent and that, and the damage that they cause. They throw their followers onto the, the pangs, the sorrows that impale their souls. And they lead their followers to the precipice over which is spiritual ruin and utter destruction. But not all that they say is bad. I know that. I know that absolutely. I know that you can listen to somebody like Kenneth Copeland for 15, 20 minutes and hear straight, evangelical, orthodox, conservative theology and truth. But candy-coated poison is still poison. Satan appearing as an angel of light, as he does, the Bible says, is still Satan. A lie that's cloaked in the truth is still a lie. And nobody would step into the snare without a bait. There has to be that bait. And I would say, when when does the devil say anything that is all bad? If it was all bad, if it was blatantly, completely all wrong, nobody would be deceived. So I want to get into this a little bit. I want to help you. I want you to be discerning. I want you to be aware. I don't want you to be ignorant because of the damage that this teaching causes. And because it is so rampant. It is rampant. I want you to pay attention. I want you to know these things because I would be willing to bet that you are you are coming into contact with people who believe these lies every day that you're out in the public. Whenever you're out in the public, you are coming in contact with people who believe these things. I know, because I talk to people about where they go to church, and they often go to churches that teach prosperity theology. So what is the message of Joel Osteen and his ilk? The message of Joel Osteen and he really embodies this. That's why I'm highlighting him. The message of Joel Osteen is self-help and self-fulfillment, which in itself is a man-centered and worldly philosophy. But it is not just straight self-help. It is not just straight self-improvement and advancement. That would be bad enough. But today's most popular Prosperity teaching offers self-help wrapped in Christian terminology with paganism at the core. And I will demonstrate that. 
The pagan core of this is the idea that we can control and create and change reality by fixing in our minds what we want and calling it to be with our words. That is why they call this movement Word of Faith or simply Word Faith Movement. The movement grew out of, and this is a big, you know, a big problem in the 20th century, and obviously now into the 21st, but it, it is rooted in a movement that started in the 19th century called New Thought. And New Thought itself drew from many pagan wells, like Hinduism. And if you want more information about this, want to do a little bit more research, I would you know, gladly recommend this book, Health, Wealth, and Happiness, subtitled, Has the Prosperity Gospel Overshadowed the Gospel of Christ by David Jones and Russell Woodbridge. This is the church library copy. So again, you are coming into contact with people every day who believe these things. You should have legs to stand on. So I would encourage further study, which is painful. One night I listened to, because I got into discussion with local pastors about this thing, I watched five hours of Kenneth Copeland on YouTube. One of the most painful nights of my life. But uh, hopefully it does have some benefit, the study and the research. So, word of faith, this movement of prosperity theology grew out of new thought, which draws from many pagan wells, including Hinduism. The teaching of new thought is that our problems, no matter what those problems are, whether they are spiritual problems or physical problems, environmental problems, relational, emotional, what have you, without us, within us, all of the problems are centered in the mind. So the mind creates and controls reality. And speaking the right words brings it to be. You activate the reality that you fix in your mind with the right words. That's why it's called word faith. And so the emphasis is that we must control our thoughts and our words to achieve the right effect. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. From Joel Osteen's writing, from your best life now, 2007 bestseller. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, okay? That's the self-help part. That's the self-fulfillment part. You're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. He's going to talk about faith. That's the Christian terminology. He says you must Do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. This is coming, this next quote from It's Your Time, written in 2009. When you say of the Lord, you are healthy, you are whole, you are free, you are blessed, you are prosperous. When you say it, God has promised he will do it. If you are not sharing in his favor... You might want to watch your words. Here's the key. If you don't unleash your words in the right direction, if you don't call in favor, you will not experience those blessings. Nothing happens unless we speak. Release your faith with your words. Now it is possible that someone could be sitting here thinking, I don't get it, what's the big deal? 
Look at what Paul said about this. He said, those who believe that godliness is a means of gain are depraved in their mind and deprived of the truth. Paul uses extremely forceful language to warn Timothy and to caution all of us who are reading down here in the 21st century. Those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And that's exactly what Joel Osteen said. If you want to be prosperous, if you want to be healthy, you have to speak the right words. You have to have faith and speak the words that will activate it and create and control and change the reality. Godliness is a means of gain. That's the sum of the message. I would encourage you to handle Joel Osteen and the rest of his peers like you would a counterfeit $100 bill. Handle it just long enough so that you can spot the fakes. But don't put it to use. Stick to the real thing. Stick to the truth. I want to give you three things to watch for in prosperity preaching. Number one, making much of man. This is going to be dominant. Now, God's glory may be spoken of in prosperity preaching in glowing terms, but it's not going to be the aim. You and your fulfillment will always be the thrust of prosperity preaching. Some of these prosperity preachers will talk about sin and talk about the cross. Joel Osteen is not one of them. He will never... I think I can say that. Never talk about sin. Very rarely will he talk about the cross. But the prosperity preachers that do talk about that stuff will use that as a backdrop to bring me, myself, and I into focus. Pressing holiness, pressing love, is for personal advancement. We and our abilities and potentials will be exalted very high. So making much of man, watch for that. Also, watching your words. You have to blab it if you're going to grab it. You have to name it if you're going to claim it. I'll tell you how extreme this gets. One of these messages that I watched that was preached in the last couple years by Kenneth Copeland He was talking about, he was applying the verse, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, which is from Ephesians 4. And then he told the story about he and his wife and uh, a great gathering of people surviving a tornado in Florida during some healing service. He described their survival and attributed their survival to this. Two weeks earlier, Gloria Copeland, Kenneth's wife, was about to say, that blows me away. But she stopped. And that was the reason that two weeks later, when the tornado came, they were all okay. That's how ridiculous it becomes. Don't say, my memory isn't what it used to be. Don't say, break a leg. Watch your expressions because negative words create a negative reality. Positive words, and yes, I'm I'm using literal, actual preaching from Kenneth Copeland there. I'm not making that up. Don't talk like that, he says. 
Those things will happen, and it's your fault if they do. Negative words create negative reality. Positive words create positive reality. And by the way, I want to show you how evil this is quickly. Remember what we've been concentrating on back in Luke. I know I'm going back several weeks now, but we've been talking about the authority of the word of Christ. He speaks and his word does. Now these people, Kenneth Copeland is one who says that we are little gods. That's why we have the same capacity to do that. What he is talking about is attributing to ourselves, receiving for ourselves the omnipotence of God. This is nothing less than blasphemy. So there will be making much of man, watching your words, and third, promising, of course, prosperity. And it's not, you know, we don't call it blab it and grab it, name it and claim it for nothing. Now, some of them will acknowledge hard times. They will. But hard times will be minimized. Getting out of them, not enduring them, is going to be the focus. And they're going to say that health and wealth are key signs of God's favor in a solid Christian walk. So what must you do? You need to know your Bible. I guess I'm in the begging posture. You need to know the Word of God. Don't, and don't approach the Word of God, okay, I'm going to spot the, the heresies of the prosperity gospel, and I'm going to expose those suckers. That's not what it's about. Knowing the heresy, recognizing the heresy, is a byproduct of searching the Word of God to know Him. We search God's Word and we dig deep to know our God, to know His truth. The byproduct is we recognize and we're on guard for, and we avoid the errors. But you need to know your Bible. Like you, need, like you know your, your house. Like you know your backyard. You know? You know the lay of the land, right? You know it so well. So know the lay of the biblical land. So that whenever a preacher would lead astray, off the straight and narrow, out of bounds, on a different path, you can recognize it right away. And even before he says it, you can smell it coming. Need to know the scriptures. It is extremely distressing to see people all over our community embracing Satan's word as God's word. That's what's happening here. I have this increasing burden for the church at large in North Louisiana. And I'm partnered with pastors and we're partnered with churches who have like mind, this deep concern for the church in North Louisiana. We need to be on guard. So what are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness that Paul talked about in verse 3? He says, if they don't agree with that, he says... It says in verse 4, they're puffed up with conceit. He says, they understand nothing. Doesn't that sound like he's going too far? Now, do they really understand nothing, Paul? He's using very forceful language. They're completely ignorant and completely, completely arrogant and completely ignorant at the same time. They think they know everything, but they have no spiritual perception, no biblical discernment whatsoever. So he says it. They don't know anything. What is the teaching of Christ? Serve God 
and not money. Serve others and not self. Lay down your life for others. Deny yourself and take up the cross. The blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's the teaching that accords with godliness. The Bible teaches us, Acts 14, Paul went to the, all, all the churches. Acts 14, 20-something. He says to all the churches, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then James and Peter say, count it all joy when you meet those temptations and rejoice in the day when your faith is tested and refined by the fire. Paul in Romans 5 said, we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our suffering because suffering shapes us, produces character and endurance. It strengthens us and it produces the hope of the glory of God that will never disappoint. That's the teaching that accords with godliness. And in all these things we are told, all these painful things, this is Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But these people imagine that godliness is a means to gain. So temporal wealth is the the goal and the eternal God is the way to get it. The problem of people deceived by prosperity preachers is obviously nothing new. The early church dealt with them and battled them too. And it's just so sad that despite the force of Paul's teaching and despite the clarity of it, millions of people will shout amen in Joel Osteen's direction every week. A million people will download Joel Osteen's message from today. Millions more will watch it on TV. So try this. It's not a tactic. It's not about winning an argument. But try this with someone who talks up Joel Osteen. Just ask them the simple question. Do you believe that godliness leads to prosperity? Do you believe godliness leads to prosperity? Paul said, those who are depraved in their mind and deprived of the truth, imagine that godliness is a means to gain. If those people that you talk to are aware, fully aware of what Joel Osteen teaches and they're on board with his teaching, they will affirm that statement, godliness leads to prosperity as biblically true and then point them to what Paul says. Those who imagine godliness is a means of gain are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. And we're not trying to say this is... Paul is saying these are the false teachers. His concentration is on the teachers and the preachers of this mess, not on followers, not on those who are deceived. So we're not to say, you're depraved. We're just showing them what the scriptures say to give to them the strongest warning. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain, but it says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now let's leave prosperity preaching and 
And that condemnation, legitimate biblical condemnation aside for a moment, and let's focus on us and where we are. Because I don't think, I, I hope not anyone here would believe in what the prosperity preachers are passing along. Let's focus on us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what is gain to you, really? Do you want what the world affords, or do you want Christ? What would you, what would you hate to do without tomorrow? What would you hate to do without? Would you hate more to do without your phone or go without speaking to Jesus tomorrow? Would you hate to do without your phone or without speaking to Jesus? Which one would affect you, bother you? Which one would you hate the most? What would you feel more? What would affect you more? A sleepless night or a Christless day? Which would sting more? Which one would hurt you the most? Which one would you really feel? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If you are grasping for the world in order to be pleased, you're always going to be grasping. And the world is always going to be slipping through your fingers. Because you cannot hang on to it. That's the nature of the world and its pleasures. None of them last. They are all fleeting and passing away. You will never be pleased. You will never come to the point where you say, okay, now I've had enough. I've had enough of the world. It has finally filled me and completely satisfied me and I don't need any more of it. You won't come to say that. It cannot fill you. I want you to understand something. This is key. It is not in the temporal world to fill a soul that is made in the image of God. It's not in the world to do that. The world doesn't have that capacity, that ability to fill you up. That would be like, that would, that would be saying, if we're going after the world, we would be depending on the things God has put under our feet to satisfy our souls. The things put under our feet to fill us up. That's what that would be saying, but it's not in the world to do that because it's beneath us. It's not equal to us. The created order does not have the same value as a soul made in the image of God, as all souls are made. Now, we need something to fill us, so what? If not the world, what then? We need something that is outside of us and outside the world. We need something that is not temporal. We need something eternal. We need something that's not diluted. We need something that is pure. What do we need? Colossians 2 says, In Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. In Ephesians 3, it says, When Christ dwells in your heart by faith, and you know that love of Jesus that passes all knowledge, 
you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We are filled with God. We are filled with His image, the Lord Jesus Christ. So with Christ, who is the fullness of God, and the basics of life, food and clothing, which are icing on top of the cake of the gospel, with Christ and the basics, what more do we need? What more do we need? What need does Christ not satisfy? Can we not be content? Paul says in verse 9, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. No one who wants to be rich only wants to be rich. That's what Paul says in verse 9. No one who wants to be rich only wants to be rich. He says they desire, those who desire to be rich, fall into many more desires. And they are all harmful and senseless desires. So really, riches is not... Okay, so the Lord becomes a means to gain. Godliness becomes a means to gain. But riches is not exactly the end either. Riches is a means to something else. What do these people want? For one thing, they want to be... They want to achieve a certain level of autonomy. Where they're free from God. If I'm rich, I'll be free from worry. It's not having the Lord that frees them from worry. It's having riches that frees them from worry. They don't want to pray, have to pray, Lord, give me my daily bread. They don't want to have that concern. And so they're trying to achieve a a measure of autonomy from God. What else do they want? What are these other senseless and harmful desires? They want the personal gratification that comes from possessions which riches buy. Personal gratification. They want the self-exaltation that comes from the position that riches buys. So autonomy, personal gratification, and self-exaltation. And none of these will add anything to your life whatsoever. They cannot add to you. They don't give to you. They rob you blind. They rob you of your humanity. Because you were created in the image of God to bring glory to God. That's why you're here. That's why you were born. That's why you were born again. To bring glory to God. The desire for riches steals all of that away. The desire for riches is dehumanizing. In verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves, literally been impaled with many pangs, many sorrows. This is... One primary reason why I am going to be so blunt and plain about the prosperity deceivers. Because this is what they do to their followers. This is what they do to their disciples. They throw them to be impaled on worldly sorrows. They lead them to the precipice over which is spiritual ruin and utter destruction. Paul is very plain about this. Now, he does say... It's implied here, not everyone who craves money ends up turning their back on Jesus. That happens to some. He says some wander from the faith. 
It doesn't happen to everybody. Why not everybody? Because those who don't turn their backs on Jesus have the Spirit of God's, the, the Spirit's intervention, restoring them to their senses so that they believe the Bible instead of the prosperity preachers. So they end up believing that Jesus is the fullness of God and Jesus is enough for me. He is all that I need. But if they do not come to their senses, they will wander from the faith. So verses 11 to 16, Paul says we must flee these things. Flee the lust for worldly gain. Flee the desire for riches. And instead, we must set the eyes of our hearts on Jesus. We must set the feet of our hearts after Jesus. We must pursue righteousness. This is verse 11. Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Are you? Are you pursuing after these things with your life? He says it's going to be a fight. Why? Why is it a fight? Because all the world around us has its heart set on worldly gain. And all the world around us wants us to follow suit. And so it's going to be a fight. But Paul says, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Why is pursuing godliness and steadfastness and gentleness and love and faith and all of the rest, why is it a fight of faith? Because worldly gain is sensatory. It's a sensory experience. You get the gain and you can crunch the numbers. It's a sensory experience. You can measure what you have. You can calculate your net worth. You can buy something to sit in and to drive. It's a sensory experience. We can handle worldly gain. But taking hold of eternal life is very different. Jesus for us in this age is very different. Jesus, our relation with, relationship with him is not a sensory experience. We walk by faith, not by sight. So we rejoice in Christ, but we don't see him yet. For this age... Jesus is not a sensory experience for believers. That's why it is the good fight of faith. And yet it says in verses 15 and 16, the God who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, will Verses, end of verse 14 and into 15. He will, this God will, whom we have never seen or can see, he will at the proper time display for us the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith will be turned to sight at the proper time. Our prayers will be turned to praise. We will see him. In the meantime, we must fight the good fight of faith and pursue godliness with contentment. Now let's move on, quick close here with verses 17 to 19. What about if we actually have in our hands more than the basics? 
food, and clothing. If we have more than that, how should we think about our riches? And of course, we all have more than the basics. First, Paul says that we must remember that God provides us with everything to enjoy. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Riches are not evil. Acquiring riches is not evil. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's so easy for us, for our excitement to terminate on the given thing. For our desire to terminate on the material thing. If we're going to enjoy everything in a godly way, we must enjoy what God gives to us in Him. Which means our desires don't terminate on the things, our desires terminate on God. Our thanksgiving and our excitement and our, all of that, the, the passion that we feel in our hearts doesn't terminate on the things that God gives to us. It all goes to God. We enjoy all things in Him. One way that we can enjoy what God gives to us in a godly way is to enjoy it with other people. You know, show some hospitality. Have people into your home. Enjoy what God has given to you with others. Take someone out to eat. Go somewhere together. Do something with people. That's enjoying things in a godly way as together we enjoy them in God. Second, he says in verse 18, how, we, how are we to, to think about riches that we acquire? We are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We are stewards of what God gives to us. We don't actually own what we have. God is the owner. We are stewards. We are managers of what belongs to God. And we are to use the resources that God gives to us as a tool. How should you think about money? One key way, crucial way to think about money is that money is a resource. It's a tool that can aid you in our mission of showing love to others in Jesus' name. It can aid you in the mission of building others up. So what we have in our hands, we don't hold tight in a closed fist. We have them with an open hand. We have those riches and we should be generous and ready to share. Third, when we use our riches this way, we are storing up treasure for the coming age. That is verse 19. We are to keep our eyes on the ultimate prize. And that awaits the future day. Now what does that mean? Okay, this is... It can very easily be misunderstood. He says that when we are generous and ready to share, we are storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. So what? We're going to be rich in heaven? We're going to be just rolling in the money, living it up in the lap of luxury? No, that's not what it means. Again, let's be careful about the words. Pause over each phrase and mull it over. We are storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. I think that Paul is saying that those who use God's resources here to bless others will be put in the position. They will be entrusted with more resources in the coming age to bless others. Remember where Jesus said, 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul quoting in Acts 20. We know that passage, right? I don't think that that was just a maxim, a truth for this life, for this age. That is life. That is what it means. One thing that it means to be created in the image of God. It is always in this age, this temporal passing age, and the eternal age to come. It will always be more blessed to give than to receive. God is not going to cease to be a giving God in the age to come. And we are not going to cease being giving people. And so I think that those who use their resources that God supplies them wisely, humbly, not being haughty, never looking down on others who have less, not, you know, in spite or contempt, but using them generously and wisely, they will be entrusted with more in the age to come to have that maximum joy of giving to others and blessing others. By the, if you have a picture of, you know, sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp with a halo over your head, wearing a white robe, get it out of your head. That's not the Bible's picture of the eternal age. And in doing this, in giving generously, humbly, Paul says in verse 19, we take hold of that which is truly life. That's taking hold of what is truly life. True life. The full life is a giving life. Not a taking. Not a receiving. Not a clinging. Not a hoarding life. When we give, we are living the life of the age to come in this present evil, dark age. What a promise. Does that motivate you? Does that spur you on to pursue after godliness with contentment? You can take hold of that which is truly life. You can store up and you can invest for what you will be and what you will do in the coming age. But if you desire riches, it's dehumanizing. You're killing yourself. You're being robbed blind. And it may lead you to wander away from the faith. So today, I want you to be aware of prosperity preachers and the massive error of their teaching. I want you to hate all that they stand for. And I want you to fight for souls in love. Because people who believe this message are being impaled on worldly sorrows and being led to utter destruction. Let's fight the good fight of faith and take hold of that which is truly life. What will you decide? Today you're going to decide something. Even if you decide nothing at all, that's your decision, to do nothing. What will you decide? What will you resolve? Will you resolve to spend your life pursuing godliness with contentment? Let's pray. Father, we have found that fullness is in Christ. He is all that we need 
I pray that you would bring our hearts to the place that he is truly all that we want and all that we are after. Father, if there is someone here who is pursuing after worldly gain, going after riches, I pray that you would halt them in their tracks before it is too late. I pray that no one here would turn their back on Jesus for riches, which we cannot take out of this world. We've been reminded today, Father, we are leaving this world. There is an age to come. We will give an account to you, and we may store up for that age right here in the present. I pray, Father, that we would have generous, generous hearts, and the riches that we have, we would not hold on to or cling to, but hold with an open and generous hand to all who are in need. Thank you for using us to bless other people. I pray that my church family would be encouraged today with fresh resolve to pursue godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.